You're listening to the seventh episode of the Alan Gray podcast. My name is Tamron Lamb. I'm head of retail at Alan Gray, and I'm going to be your host for this episode. I'm also joined by Alan Gray's chief investment officer, Duncan Artis. So Duncan and I were part of the first podcast that we did in June of last year. So we're quite excited to be doing the first for 2023, which some of you may know actually marks 50 years that Alan Gray has been operating in South Africa. So given it was our first for the year, and given that milestone, we really wanted to take this opportunity to thank you, everyone listening, and to all our clients for the trust and confidence that you have placed in what has been multiple generations of both investment and business teams over the last five decades. Our focus remains on ensuring that this trust is well-placed. So when we look back on 2022, it's probably going to be remembered for being the year of war and inflation, and perhaps also the end of a decade of free money distorting markets. And when you think about sort of the combination of all of those factors, it seems to have burst a bubble that had been building for a number of years. And while we've seen a little bit of a rebound in the month of January, if we look at the year of 2022 and you had invested 100% of your portfolio into an offshore balanced fund, 60% in the world index, 40% in government bonds, it would have declined you know, 18% in dollar terms. Uh, so the combination of a poor performance in equities and bonds resulted in one of the sort of the worst performance of that kind of portfolio in close to 100 years. So that's quite a sensational intro, but it does give you a sense of how big the moves were last year. So what we're going to try and focus on today is to make sense of some of these moves and how they might play out and impact investors over the next few years. Okay, so Duncan, we know that 2022 seems like it was quite an unusual year. So maybe we can start off with asking you when you think about it, kind of like what comes to mind? Uh, And do you think we're going to look back in, say, five years' time and see this kind of was actually a turning point for markets and for some big trends? Yes, I do think what is it going to be remembered for, in my mind, the two things. So one, when you typically have a diversified portfolio, you know, when we look back at history, you've often had big drawdowns in equity markets. That's nothing new. In fact, in the last 20 years, this will be the third one. What was different this time was the big loss you took on your fixed income portfolio. So typically, people would hold bonds and cash to sort of offset the volatility in equities. And in 2022, um, with inflation, I guess, going higher and staying higher for longer than both markets and central banks expected, we saw a rapid rise in interest rates. And that fed through into the bond market as well. And so you ended up having losses in your fixed income portfolio. I think the other thing it's going to be remembered for is clearly the Russian invasion of Ukraine. You know, sort of geopolitical risks have been rising for some period of time. We've been speaking about sort of a dividing type world. And this, I guess, was just more like the shock of it actually happening. I actually listened to someone explain it quite well, which is even for me, sometimes it doesn't seem real. You're watching it on your TV and it's happening somewhere. It's happening somewhere else. So I do think the sort of loss on fixed income portfolios and then sort of geopolitical risks coming through into the portfolio. Certainly kind of one of the trends that also sort of was a big factor last year and which caused the sort of rise in interest rates was inflation. Uh, And that does feel like it's a trend. You know, we've basically been in a disinflationary environment for the past 10 to 15 years. And now it looks like inflation in the US has peaked. 
and people looked like it's going to go down, but there's a lot of debate. Does it end at four? Does it end at two? Uh, and, and why is that debate important to us? You know, we don't build the portfolios from the top down. So, you know, when you think about that, which camp do you sit in? Are you a 4% or are you more of a 2%? And how does that impact the way you think about the portfolios? You know, we're talking about developed world in inflation here. Obviously, there has been in inflation in, in emerging markets. And as we've spoken about a number of times in South Africa, we, we just used to inflation came as a big shock to, to many of those in the developed world where you haven't ever had sort of prices increasing at, at double digits. And, and in fact, you know, some of the producer price indices in Europe with the energy shock where prices were increasing 30, 40%. So it, it was a big change to the system. You want to change your mind as, as new data comes in. But if you had to pin me down now, I would say I would be in the higher end of, of the inflation sort of camp. Just based on maths, obviously the inflation rate's going to drop if, you know, Inflation is the year-on-year change in prices, and we've already seen in the U.S. the last few months, the month-on-month has actually been negative. So you've got this weird sort of balance between inflation on goods, when there's obviously a shortage during the pandemic, and then inflation in services. And I guess that's the tough thing to call. Just if you watch Sky News or if you watch it, it seems like there's strikes all over the place, right? So kind of in South Africa, I just think at Alan Gray, people expect an inflationary increase at the beginning of the year. You know, that hasn't been the case in the developed world. Uh, but it seems if it gets into the psyche and people expect higher prices, that's how sort of in- inflation takes hold. And I think we can see, by the way, the market reacted this year. It, it is important. We bottom-up investors, sure, that's equities. But, you know, a large chunk of our assets are asset allocation funds where we need to think about uh, the fixed income component as well. And obviously, high inflation, if it stays, is not great for fixed income returns. And I think the other reason why it's important is we would have seen in 2022, you know, if you have higher inflation, if you have higher short-term interest rates, different types of equities perform in, in different ways. And I guess you could say higher inflation, higher interest rates would typically tend to favor value shares as opposed to to long duration growth stocks. I do think it is is important. We've also said, you know, over the past couple of months that this type of environment uh, where you see a resetting of valuations and kind of a a reversion of certain trends, that that's quite good for us as, you know, fundamental stock pickers. But what do we mean by that? And can you give us some examples, both locally and maybe offshore? Okay. So I think if you look at the very long term, and, you know, you can argue about the definitions, but value has kind of outperformed growth, I think 1% to 2%. I haven't looked at the numbers um, recently. And really over the last decade, up until 2022, there's been growth shares that have outperformed value stocks. And so I think when we look and say, well, is there ever going to be a time when when that reverts to mean. And I think that's partly what we saw last year. Just to highlight, you know, to everyone, we don't like to be pigeonholed. If we do think stock or a business that is growing fast is cheap, you know, we would own it. And I guess a great example in the South African context, although not last year, you know, would have been Tencent, right? So Tencent, you know, was a business that you should have paid a high price for if you go back many, many years ago. Um, So we do try value growth correctly. You know, mean reversion is obviously easier in a commodity-based business, right? You can do your work and there are times when commodity prices are high and there are times when commodity prices are low and a commodity type of business's earnings will follow with the cycle and, and often the valuation as well, as opposed to, I guess it's far tougher when you've got businesses that might be in, in permanent decline. And I think kind of what was very interesting last year is 
what we call a disruptor stock. So Zoom, Beyond Meat, all the type of things which people said were going to change industries sort of forever. You know, a lot of them were reliant a lot on cheap capital. And some of the numbers of the sort of, if you look at the Russell Index in the US, I've seen numbers that say as high as 40% of the businesses listed there don't make any profit at the moment. And so I do think that's a big change for for businesses that we invest in as well, because if your competitors have free capital, it makes quite an uneven playing environment. And when we look at it now, it seems like the market's gone back to focus on, you know, do you produce positive cash flow? Do you have a decent balance sheet? Do you actually make accounting profits? And I do think that's one of the things that can change. And we saw that in the year 2000, and now we saw it again in 2020 and 2021. So if you look at some of those bigger tech businesses, obviously we saw you know, a broader pullback in tech last year, ups and downs, but a broader pullback. And we know that the NASDAQ has come back quite a lot. I think it was Seth Kleiman that said, though, that the root of most bubbles you know, started with a good idea that went to excess. And if you're talking about a, a kind of a refocus on fundamentals and cash flow generative businesses, couldn't you argue that many of those were actually highly disruptive, highly cash flow generative, and actually, you know, well-run businesses? And so, you know, with that in mind, if some of those businesses have pulled back, is there not, you know, is there not actually opportunity now, or you know, is there a lot more to go? Certainly, there was opportunity. Just to remind everyone, you know, if you're looking at our sort of things that we've written about 2022, there's been a significant bounce in, in January. You know, the NASDAQ is up 12%. Many of the stocks up 20 And as an example, Tesla bottomed at $102. It's $177 now. So there have been some significant moves. And it's kind of what we spoke about in some of the things we wrote at the end of last year. We expect a bounce from, from these very oversold conditions. If you look at history, it is very unusual. In fact, I can't think there might be something I, I can't think of that the leaders of the markets of the previous decade, there's one blip year, then you go straight back to those shares being the leaders for, for the next decade. That's just not the way history has played out. Of course, you know, there could always be, be a first time. And I was looking at an interesting uh, list the other day. I think I might have emailed it to you about the 20 things that exist today. I mean, the iPhone didn't even exist 20 years ago, right? So trying to predict what's going to happen in, in technology is extremely difficult. And there are lots of new competitors. I know we might talk about it later, but if you look at these chatbots coming out now, people are all of a sudden worried about the the Google search engine, right? So competition comes from places you often don't expect it. I think we've mentioned before, for sure, out of those hundred stocks that went up a lot and a whole ton of them almost went to zero, within there somewhere there's the next Facebook or or the next the next alphabet. So I do think it's very interesting that big businesses are starting to compete with themselves. And so if you look at Amazon or, or if you look at Alphabet, obviously a lot of the growth and I guess a lot of the higher margin business, especially for Amazon, comes in the cloud. And, you know, these businesses earn very high margins in the cloud. But in the end, that should be a commoditized business and margins might come under pressure. And it's interesting that all the tech stocks are following Mr. Musk and laying off whole chunks of their, their workforce, which I think just shows you it's not these perpetual growth machines. In my own sort of simplistic way of, of thinking about it, I personally think one of the things people got wrong is just the sheer size of the businesses. You know, when Apple becomes a $3 trillion market cap, you know, if you're going to be valued on a reasonable multiple, that's big, big profit streams you have to find to continue to grow to justify the high PE. But yeah, these are great businesses. And as we mentioned, I think in the video we did, the video update, you know, our, our colleagues at Orbis 
have been looking at some of the big tech shares that would make a lot of sense. And when the fact sheets come out, you'll see that we actually have purchased Alphabet, which is the parent company of Google. Yeah, I mean, I like to think I had fun 20 years ago. But when I think about today, when I spend most of my time on an iPhone or an iPad, Netflix, WhatsApp, yeah, I'm, I'm not a big YouTube or Insta follower, but quite a lot of my time today is spent on things that actually went around two decades ago. But when you talk about tech, that was obviously a major driver of like a rise in global equity markets, but particularly the US. You know, and we have been heard over the past few years saying that we are kind of worried about valuations in global equities. And notwithstanding the fact that markets pulled back and they've bounced a little in the first month. And if we look into, let's say, the Allen Gray Balance Fund, are we still worried about the valuation risks in global equities? And you know, where do you think the, the bigger opportunities lie outside of what you've just mentioned on some of the tech businesses? The reason why we were worried about the valuations in, in global equities was really down to valuations in the U.S. market itself. So the U.S. market, I think, got close to almost 70% of weighting in, in the world index. It was normally around 60. So, you know, if you look at markets outside the U.S. and you convert the share prices into dollars, uh, many of them are lower than they were in 2007. So for most of the world, the last sort of two decades, or just under two decades, equities have been going nowhere. It's really being powered by the U.S. Uh, and within the U.S., those sort of mega cap uh, tech shares produced a whole chunk of the, the return. And I guess something that's very interesting is there are a lot of people who say, well, maybe that trend has come to an end. I'm not 100% convinced yet, but if we look at the last two months, emerging markets and European equities and Asian equities have outperformed US equities by quite a bit. And um, if we look over the very long term, why have US equities done well? Well, they've actually been able to grow earnings. If you look at Europe, if you look at Asia, if you look at South Africa, and you convert the earnings of the shares into dollars, actually, it's incredibly hard to grow your earnings over the long term in, in dollars. So in some way, it has been justified that the US has grown as a percentage of, of the world index. What do we still worry about? Well, I think when you look at the equity markets, uh, we spoke about it earlier, certainly, in my humble opinion, they are pricing in a return of inflation back to 2%, which means if you look at the yield curve in the US, it's very inverted. In other words, Short-term interest rates at four and a half are much higher than the ten-year bond at, at three and a half, and so people are expecting a return back to to where we were. And if it turns out, as we discussed earlier, that that isn't the case, you know, I think equity valuations could come under pressure, and it's hard to know the effects. But we have lived through since the GFC, and then a massive acceleration around the pandemic into this huge expansion of central bank balance sheets. So that may, has meant there's lots of money flowing across the world. And very interestingly, depending on which time period you use, uh, if you look at, at the US, kind of the latest data point, money supply growth has gone negative. In other words, there's less money in the US than there was last year, which is a big, big change, and it hasn't happened in, in, in many years. So you've had all these things on the way up. And, and in my experience, people never ask why shares go up. They only ask when shares go down. And, and so all these sort of events, whether it's, quantitative tightening instead of quantitative easing, a move away from passive, perhaps back to active, higher interest rates. This can all have an effect on on the equity market. Just, I mean, to, to remind everyone, you know, if you invest in a two-year US Treasury now, you get over 4%, whereas before you were getting zero. And, you know, for many endowments and, and pension funds, you know, the return targets are 6 7% in dollars. And so if you can put a whole chunk of your portfolio and lend to the U.S. government at, at 400%, there are alternatives out there. So if you just put it all together, 
yes, markets have pulled back, but I think those risks are all still there. And it's just kind of what's the probability, I guess, distribution when you're thinking about it from a balanced fund or, or a stable fund point of view. So you spoke right at the beginning of that answer around the fact that actually some of the markets that have been recovering have been, you know, within emerging markets and, and China, and we didn't mention China, but China is one of them, and Europe. Obviously, if we think about the SA index, we have a big indirect exposure to China, and we often think about the value that we can see in those shares relative to the broader China risks. Like, how are we seeing that now? Naspers has recovered quite a lot. There's a lot of optimism about China reopening, but presumably that's not quite as easy as it might sound. So how are you calibrating China risk versus opportunity and how that impacts some of the big businesses in our market, like a Richemont or a Naspers? It's a hard one. I've, I've never seen, oh, let me rephrase it. Obviously, you've seen stuff before, but the sort of consensus of just about every sell-side strategist at the beginning of the year and towards the end of 22 was by the China reopening. And you would have thought if everyone knows that already, it, would, it wouldn't have, but it's actually followed through incredibly. I mean, 10 cents up more than 100% from the bottom and emerging markets, if I look at the Bank of America data, I think at one of their biggest, I think maybe the biggest monthly inflow ever in, in terms of billions of, of dollars. And that money's got to go somewhere, right? And China... I haven't looked recently, you know, probably around 25, 30% of the emerging market index. So it's just kind of rising tide lifts all boats. I think we have to go back and think about it. So Chinese assets were hugely oversold, right? So if you looked, I mean, they had massive drawdowns. And I guess the kind of bad news was pretty well known. You know, you have more hard-leaning people being elected to the Politburo. You have the crackdown on the tech companies. You have common prosperity. Those things are all still there, right? That, that's what makes it a, a bit tricky. I guess the asset price has just got a bit low, and maybe China got a fright. I don't know this, and you can read 20 China watches and you'll get different ideas. What made Xi pivot? Not that I like that word very much, but what made Xi pivot to moving from hard lockdown, zero COVID, to actually judging people and counted on how many people were infected, right? So what caused them to do that? And some people would say it was the sort of protests. I think the smarter sort of people, but it's not actually the protests, it's the economy. The economy was just taking way too much strain, so they needed to open up. And I guess when you need to open up and you need capital, well, you want to be friendly with the West as well. You still have to have an export machine. You still need people operating in your in your country. But to me, the underlying sort of things haven't changed that much. And we come specifically back to your question here, we still think about trying to find assets that don't have as much Chinese exposure or as little Chinese exposure just to offset the risks in the portfolio. So for something like like Richemont, again, luxury has been the place to be at the beginning of the year. So Louis Vuitton, Hermes, I mean, those shares have just taken off as everyone's kind of bets on the China reopening. And why not? It's a billion people. Um, they're all going to start traveling again. They're all going to start, they're all going to start shopping. But if you had to take a very extreme scenario, and I don't know what the probability of this is, let's just say for thinking about it from a portfolio point of view, you know, if China invaded Taiwan tomorrow, what do the multinationals do? It was pretty easy to pull out of Russia, um, although I've seen reports saying that lots of companies didn't really pull out of Russia, but let's just assume that. you know, If Russia's 2-3% of your profits, uh, you can close your stores, you can sell them for very little, but for many multinationals, China is a huge portion of, of their revenue. So for instance, would Richmond shut down its stores in China and, and walk away? I really doubt it. So it's just kind of 
finding assets that, that are not that correlated to China, which is harder than you think. If you go internationally and you say, look, I want to look for shares that are not tech shares, that are not commodity shares because we overweight already commodities in, in, in South Africa and that are not pharma shares because pharma is a very difficult sector to understand. If you're going to look for these great companies in the US and even in less so in Europe, but in the US, they'll all be trading 25 to 40 times earnings. Um, so people know <laughs> which the good companies are and that's obviously why in, in investing is is hard. So it's just getting the, the balance. And I think one of the things that's been frustrating for me, you know, we've written about it and spoken about it on numerous occasions over the years about the growth in Chinese debt, that it's unsustainable, the huge debt sitting in the property sector and the shadow banking sector and the overbuilding in the residential. And guess what? The biggest developer goes bankrupt. The whole system is there. And I know it's still $120. So <laughs> it's been a bit uh, interesting to get to get one's head around. You know, the commodities have been strong, despite a lot of what we're worried about China happening. So it'll be interesting to see. Uh, longer term, China has to move to a more consumption-based economy as opposed to just investments. But it's obviously hard to wean yourself off the drug if that's what you've been basing your economic growth on for, for so long. And that would feed through also into something like a 10 cent. You know, if you were going to go back to paying 30, 35 times earnings for 10 cent, then you do have to worry about the very long-term growth in the Chinese economy. And based on our work, we, we think it's going to be structurally lower. And then the news came out a couple of weeks ago, although we have shown this in presentations before, that, that China's actual population shrank for the first time, I think since the Great Famine, and their demographics are very poor. And so the Chinese population is going to age very, very quickly, which means you know, there's less consumption uh, in the long term. So these are all complicated things, but, but it's kind of how you think about what kind of valuation you want to put on those businesses. And how does that relate specifically to NASPAS? So we've split NASPAS in two. It's almost back yeah. to its previous pandemic high. And, but Tencent is nowhere close to its pandemic high. So why would NASPAS have moved more? And that's because the discount has closed. If we go back last year, you'd remember the company uh, finally announced you know, that they'd be selling their stake in Tencent at a measured pace, repatriating those funds and buying back Tencent and process shares because they were trading at such a big discount. And so those discounts have closed meaningfully, particularly the, the NASPAS discount. And the process discount has closed quite a bit as well, but not as much as the NASPAS discount. Just remember, I think if you look at the European index, process is the largest internet listed internet company on the European index. People are bullish on China. There's a rebounce in tech shares. I mean, it's a natural place for money to flow. And interesting, I was looking this morning, you know, process NASPAS is back to our second biggest position. Um, I guess that happens when a share doubles from the bottom and we'll go back to thinking, well, you know, where, how big do we want it to be in the portfolio? Given certainly to my mind that lots of those risks in China are still there, they're just under the surface and people aren't focusing on them at the moment. Okay, so you spoke about, you know, what would the multinationals do if China invaded Taiwan? And that kind of talks to the point you were making earlier about this sort of increasingly divided world and the rise in geopolitical tension. But what does that mean for us here in SA? And is that just a risk that we have to be conscious of and as we're thinking about allocating in a global portfolio or what are the other considerations that South African investors should be thinking of? So I think first of all, just from a practical point of view, you know, 
the world is dividing and people are going to take sides, that leads to investment barriers. Dividing between? And certainly the way I said it is, but if we can just call the West the West, you know, between the US and then the world on the other side, um, which is China and Russia. And funny enough, increasingly on the stuff I read and listen to, one of the pl- the place in the world that's really booming at the moment, obviously, is the Middle East. Um, interestingly enough, I was looking at Saudi Arabia and, and China are now starting to settle part of Saudi's oil exports in yuan, not in dollars. And so a lot of central banks globally and governments, I would think, had a look when America and Europe, Japan and Australia froze Russia's reserves. I mean, they thought they had a few hundred billion dollars of reserves and half of them they can't access. So if you were sitting in a country, you go, well, wow, what happens tomorrow if the US decides they don't like me? Well, I'm going to start diversifying away from the dollar. I mean, that has an implication on how you think about currencies uh, as well. But yeah, interestingly, lots of countries now working together to try to get out the dollar system. Just a reminder to everyone, I mean, almost every global financial transaction somehow touches the US uh, financial system. And obviously, that's obviously almost more powerful than uh, than their army. I guess from a, another kind of practical thing is, you know, if you look at some of the fact sheets where people own Russian stocks, they still haven't got their money out and those stocks mm-hmm. are still down, right? So you have to start thinking how much of your portfolio would, would you want allocated there. I guess two other things come to mind. The one is along sort of this dividing world, you also, it's effectively deglobalization. And South Africa is a very small open economy. We benefit from global trade. You know, if you start moving towards all these smaller trade blocks, I don't think that's great for us longer term. And then there's just the practical thing of what is South Africa going to do? Are we east or west? Well, I think if we look at the last month, it's fairly clear we've gone east, right? We, we're we holding joint naval things with, with Russia and, and China. And Janet Yellen was just here this week. And I think we've got a little bit of a reprieve because somehow it seems everyone's trying to jostle for a position in Africa at the moment. But, you know, South African companies use most of the technologies from the West, most of our connections in the financial system are there. And, you know, we effectively supporting the other side. And then there could be a worst case scenario where South Africa sanctioned. So, you know, these things are important. The one sort of direct follow on, or perhaps maybe it was, a, it prompted a brutal reminder, the war in Ukraine was that actually this concept of cheap energy is, you know, a thing of the past. And I think in SA, we know that uh, better than most and, and we also know that it coincided with sort of a decade of underinvestment. And what is the impact of that on what we would probably call the old economy energy companies? And, you know, how do you think about the case for Glencore, you know, with all that said? Uh, and maybe some of the offshore names we have in the portfolio, like Kinder Morgan and Chambergey. Yeah, so I do think it's it's one of the sort of themes we've been talking about the last few years, an energy short world. And the numbers, if you listen to the big energy companies, they are somewhere between $1.2 and $1.5 trillion of underinvestment. And that's just for them, <laughs> let alone the grids, you know, let alone all the infrastructure. And that's complicated to, to bring on. So if you had to ask me, do we expect energy prices to be higher on a secular basis than they have been? I, I would say there's quite a strong case for that. Obviously, in the short term, all these things are, are very cyclical if they're recessions. Uh, if markets just believe something different, you, you can obviously get an oil price that, that moves quite significantly. And I do think often when you speak to people on the outside, they just assume all the oil majors are oil companies, but actually they're energy companies, right? Gas and, and lots of other different types of, of energies, which we use in, in everyday life. So I do think higher energy prices are here. And we, 
I mean, one of the interesting things, just as a little sidebar, I mean, it's also affecting politics, right? If you look in Europe at the moment, almost every new government that's being elected is, is center-right or right. And why is that happening? Well, when your gas bill goes up so much, people now want secure and affordable energy. Um, and obviously, that has lots, lots of implications when, when we go forward. So, you know, how has it affected a, a company like, like Glencore? Well, we just think of it in, in two ways. So the first is, as we've written about many times, we think Glencore has a commodity basket. It's very well positioned for the energy transition. I mean, whether it's copper, zinc, cobalt, uh, you know, they're well positioned to, to supply that. Um, and by the way, if you do the maths, there's no ways we can actually do the transition. There's just not enough metals in the world. So I guess we'll have to cross that bridge when, when, when we get there. The second is, you know, Glencore took a different view to BHP and Anglos who unbundled their energy portfolios for, for want of a better word. And Glencore have took to keep earning their coal assets, their thermal coal assets and, and running those down over the next three decades. And obviously, as we went into this energy shortage last year, people were desperate for coal. China is still building new coal stations and Europe needed energy. That pushed coal prices, we all know, to ridiculous levels. And they've come off a lot, but Glencore was making substantial free cash flow from its coal operations, um, which can either pay out as a dividend to shareholders or reinvest in the future facing metals business. Then I guess there's actually a third point. Glencore is obviously the world's biggest commodities trader. And so when you have big movements and volatility in global commodity and energy markets, you know, they're able to take advantage of that in, in the trading business, as are some of the, the big energy majors like Shell and Total and BP. You have massive trading businesses um, as part of that. And so I think while we reduced uh, the weighting to energy towards the end of, of last year, I think it will remain an overweight in the portfolio if, if valuations stay where they are because the companies are generating significant free cash flow. They all, I think Exxon announced a $70 billion buyback. I stand corrected on that number, but it's huge. So cash is being returned to shareholders rather than you know, being wasted on, on expansion that, that doesn't have to be there at the moment. Maybe if we just stay on this topic before I move to the next question because it's hard to talk about energy without talking about ESG and all the concerns that clients, people have around these businesses. And last year definitely highlighted that it's complex, the energy transition, and it's going to take us some time before we can get to clean and green uh, energy. But for a long time, ESG funds have, have represented a sort of a, almost like a tidal wave of funds flowing into cleaner energy. And many of these businesses have been considered almost un, uninvestable. So, so do you think that sentiment is changing? Do you think people see their role in the transition uh, as a kind of more fundamental part going forward? Or does it just start better, you know, either to their valuations or to their cost of capital? Well, it definitely matters to the valuation and, and cost of capital. But I think last year showed a real change in attitude, certainly from what I've read and, and seen, which is people have realized you need secure energy and you need affordable energy. One of my favorite podcasts I listen to, guy has the best way of saying this, energy is life. If you mess with energy, you, you mess with life, right? And there's been all kinds of different consequences, whether it's Bangladesh, you know, like having no money to pay for LNG, you know, having a, their crop failing. It's just, yeah, I, I would definitely say the attitudes have, have changed. The long-term trend is still there, right? Because you could make the counter argument, which is, well, if you've underinvested in energy and now you've noticed, you know, you, you don't have the energy to sustain your economy or population, well, the first thing you should do is spend more on renewables. 
right, to make up the gap, kind of the same debate we, we're having in South Africa. But I, so I do think what we've been speaking about over the years is just to say, you know, there's E, S, and G. There tended to be a lot of focus on the E, the environment. And last year, brought a lot more into focus the S, which is the social, right? So poverty, being able to keep yourself warm, being able to produce enough in, in, in the economy, etc. And I do think a, a lot of the ESG funds were simply a long technology, short commodity energy. And obviously with the reversal last year, that called in, into question some of the, the performance metrics that I guess people have used historically to try to say, well, you can do good and your returns will, will, will be high. And I think that maybe came into question. And things are, are complicated. I think I've said to you for a long time, at some stage, the social media companies are going to be targeted, right? And we've seen that the first uh, lawsuits are starting, where schools and parents are starting to sue the technology companies for what you mentioned earlier, where it's very difficult to teach kids if you're stuck on your phone all day and, you, you know, sort of the- I was stuck on my phone all day. <laughs> <laughs> the kind of mental anguish it's been causing kids, like there are more and more of those studies coming out. And I think you can just look at sort of the division, sort of Elon Musk's taking over of, of Twitter has, has caused. So uh, it's not obvious to me <laughs> that the tech companies are like brilliant ESG companies and something like BHP Billiton, which we need to supply the world's copper and iron ore to make steel, which goes into building grids and sort of wind turbines. You know, it's not so obvious to me that the difference between those two. Talking about energy and talking about S and G and keeping people warm at night, it made me realize that we've been speaking for half an hour and we haven't actually talked about SA. You know, the last few months of load shedding and Andre Dureta's departure uh, from ESCOM, it's weighing, I think, on the mind of a lot of South Africans. And we know that large businesses will struggle but probably survive, but this could be crippling, you know, for some small to medium-sized uh, entities and for a lot of households. So maybe I'll start off with that. It's quite a, a broad intro, but you guys have been chatting to some of the corporates over the past few weeks. What are they saying about the impact of load shedding on some of the SA businesses? First thing I learned from ESCOM is I'm glad I don't drink coffee anymore. I haven't had coffee for, for 10 years. No, it, it's a serious matter. And unfortunately, you know, it is the beginning of the year. So obviously most companies are in closed periods because mm -hmm. their results to the out of the year to December or the half year to, to December. And if you think when the real load shedding started, it was only really in the last couple of, of months, right? The real heavy load shedding. When we look, when companies are going to report now, their six months or the year, it's only going to have a couple of months of, of the severe load shedding. But where we have seen, I guess, the companies that have disclosed that lots of companies are giving numbers. And if you look at something like, I think, pick and pay is like 55 million rand extra a month. I think ShopRite was 100 million extra a month. And that's just not taking into account what it does to your to your client base as well. While, you know, we're sitting here at the waterfront, you come on the weekend, it all looks fine. Uh, okay, you have to walk past some very noisy generators. So you're keeping your revenue there, but your cost base is about to go up a lot. And I think what I personally worry about the most is if we're speaking to the businesses, like someone will say like these generators were not designed to go for eight hours without stopping. So the generators actually start breaking down or some of them even get set on fire and then you try to find a repairman for generate so mm. like the maintenance costs and keeping everything up and we've already seen it unfortunately here in Cape Town with the sewage and I think if you read the newspaper in Joburg you know water shortages everything because 
machines need to work. You can't have this intermittent power going on and off all the time, and eventually it leads to to things sort of sort of breaking down. So, I personally think we we still got to wait to to see the effect. And you know, obviously, we invest, as you say, mainly or solely in listed companies. But just by reading the newspapers and speaking to people, you know. I mean, the costs of this are, are punitive for for SMEs, and unfortunately, you know, over the long term, where does employment growth comes from? It comes from from SMEs. So I think we often focus on sort of the headlines, but I, I do think on the underlying economy, sort of the damage to small businesses, it's not, and it's, it's hard to see a way out of it, right? Because uh, whatever the politicians say, the real reason this happened was years and years of underinvestment and not maintaining it properly. It's kind of like a car. If you never take it in for a service, eventually it's not going to run properly. And no matter how many times you, you take it to the mechanic, you get past a, a point of return where, where the performance just goes down. So, I mean, I wish I could say we had some insight that was good news, but I, I, I don't think we, we really have any like that. But as I said, I think in the results to June, that's when we'll see the full sort of implications of the load shedding on actual profitability of South African companies. Okay, well, but if I were to search for a positive, I would say that, you know, it's it's A, not new, uh, and at least it, it should be, to some extent, priced in, either into yields, on fixed income instruments, or in equity valuations. So h- how do you think about, and this is, again, quite a broad question, but where are the exciting local equity opportunities? You know, what is your favorite name uh, locally? And then when when you think about the opportunities in SA government bonds. Do we think the higher interest rates, you know, adequately discount the risks involved? I don't know about the price inside. I've been surprised how strong our bonds have been. The long bonds have rallied about 100 basis points or 1%. Certainly when we look at our Africa funds and frontier funds and you think about it, normally the people would say, what's a sign of a failed state? Because it can be quite complex. And the sign of a failed state is your lights don't come on. Right. And that's a real sign of that something's gone wrong in the economy. In fact, you know, just coming back to the pricing and one of the companies I, I did speak to, they were sort of mentioning some of the investors they've met, especially those from offshore, have no idea how big the impact of load shedding is on, on South African corporates and the economy at the moment. So I think there might be a bit of a disconnect between all the fund managers who live in Cape Town. A twenty-kilometer radius of of the waterfront, and those of, of the people working in the real economy, and it's always tricky with bonds because why do I say it's tricky? Well, you could say it could be on more on my side. So, for those of you who listened and read our commentaries last year, you would have known we reduced our duration earlier in in twenty twenty two, which helped performance, but obviously that the bonds have have rallied since then. And if we place money with a bank at the moment for one year, we're getting. Eight and a half percent. So you can get eight and a half, sort of guaranteed a bank, no price risk, or we can invest in floating rate bank paper, where, you know, where interest rates adjust at the top, or you know you can lend to the government for for ten and a bit percent. But then you you face obviously capital risk. So yeah, we still think bonds are reasonably attractive, but as far as I can see, we we fairly underweight bonds compared to some of our competitors. And I'm pretty happy, especially in something like the stable fund, we've moved the duration quite a bit shorter and we can earn 8.5%. So what did I say? It was a tricky decision. The tricky decision might be, well, if you really do think load shedding is bad and earnings are going to come under pressure, the economy is really, you might say, well, why am I going to bother researching ShopRite and Pick and Pay and Walls of Sheeny? I'm just going to stick my money into a 10-year bond and earn 10.5%. So it's just, you, you never know which way people are, are thinking about bonds. Bonds are supposed to protect you when the economy is really poor. 
Although, as we saw last year, that wasn't necessarily the case. Sort of my favorite idea, I mean, I'll just say, well, like, what's the biggest sort of locally based share in the portfolio is, is Woolworths. So even though the share has been very strong over the, the last year, we, we still think the investment case is kind of working to its sort of second or, or third order. Obviously, they are selling David Jones in Australia, but the recovery in the sort of fashion beauty home uh, segment, which is what a lot of the investment case is based on, well, I, I think it's just right at the beginning. Uh, for those of you who don't believe me, go visit your local woolly store, spend some money, but have a look at the clothing uh, section. I, I think they've improved it a lot there. No debts on the balance sheet. They're going to earn over five rand this year, I would think. So it's, I think it's quite a good story, but, but the share has run quite a bit over the last while. Yeah, I might take the other points, but I'm not sure I'm going to take fashion advice from you. <laughs> so when, when you think about that essay risks and the essay local opportunity set, you, you know, it does make you think, well, you know, last year the regulator gave all funds you can invest offshore, but obviously it impacts balance funds, the ability to invest up to 45% offshore. So, you know, is part of the answer then not to kind of diversify the portfolio away from from SA? And how do you think about that increased flexibility? You know, what are the considerations that people listening should be evaluating? So I think the increased flexibility is great, right? So one of the things I learned very early in my career at Alan Gray is one of the most valuable things in the world is option. Right, just the option to do something, and that's often not priced in, into assets. I, I do think the one thing people need to take into account is that the portfolios are far more offshore than they seem, right? So if we look at our four biggest positions, you know, Glencore, British American Tobacco, Anheuser-Busch, they're not South African businesses, right? They earn a tiny bit in, in, in South Africa. So the portfolio is already pretty skewed to to offshore, but South Africa makes up I haven't seen the latest number. It's around 1% of, of the world. So if you were sitting in America, would you put 75% of your money in South Africa? You you probably wouldn't, right? So the whole sectors we, we don't really have available to us. I mean, other than NASPAS, there's no real technology sector. There's no disruptive companies listed on market. Very little pharma and, and healthcare, it's other than Aspen, is, is really nothing. And very little hardware, so sort of chip stocks and, and those type of shares. So one, it just gives you a, a greater diversity. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, it is very interesting that if you look historically, it's been very hard for the average company globally to grow their earnings in, in dollars. And in fact, the most successful companies have been US companies. And then we spoke earlier about the China risk. So how do we, you know, can we own shares that are different, that are not exposed, overexposed to emerging markets, not overexposed to China? And, you know, there's a whole big world out there uh, for something like the stable fund we want you know to invest as i said in a two-year u.s treasury at four four and a 4.3 4.4 percent you know that that's something that that's attractive so what we've done what we're doing is obviously do it every day but you know we try to compare you know what are the risk return characteristics of of assets we can see around the world one of the other questions we've had from people as well if we start investing more offshore, there's going to be a divergence of returns between the managers because now you're going to have currency movements and people will be looking at their statements in rands and it's going to be moving with the currencies. You know, I don't think that's the right way to look at it at all, right? Because then you could just standardize everyone's returns in dollars and you wouldn't get sort of the, those kind of fluctuations. If we have the ability to go a greater amount offshore, that, that does introduce some currency volatility into the portfolio. So does it change the way we think about hedging the rand or… 
uh, investing in a basket of currencies offshore? Is it kind of as we have done up until now? I think as we have done up until now, if you think about it, I just mentioned most of our big stocks are offshore companies. So if the I mean, as an example, you know, ABM Bev has been hurt by emerging market currencies being weak. They've got big businesses in, in emerging markets. So we need to look at that basket of currencies when we value ABM Bev. If you look at British American Tobacco, the same thing. They earn roughly half their, you know, profits come from the US, but they have, you know, most of these companies, the only real liquid fixed income markets for their debt is in dollars or in euros, but often they earn profits in, in lots of other different currencies. So we think about it all the time. From a RAND point of view, we do think about it a lot in, in the portfolio, but we just try to take a view at extremes, right? So if you look at the history of the RAND, if it sells off by 50, 60%, it's probably a reasonably good idea to bring some of the money back and, and vice versa. Okay, I've got, got a couple of more questions, but given we're talking about currency, the one question I do want to ask you is if we go back one year and we looked at the news, we would still have been getting lots of reports of, you know, Crypto exchanges, you know, like articles about digital collectibles going for what we would have thought would be crazy valuations. Uh, so there was still a lot of buzz about crypto a year ago. And now when we look at the news, it seems like actually most of the news about crypto is, is either another sort of crypto related business, you know, looking like they're heading towards bankruptcy or kind of even worse, people getting arrested for fraud and a lot of people being scammed. So, I mean, I know that you read up a lot on this. So do you think it's the end of the bad news? Uh, and I raise this point, not it's not because we invest in this in the portfolio, but it's been a highly topical issue for a long time for local and global investors. And was this just a case of like a good idea taken to excess? Yeah, I'd say the last comment is probably true. And I've just found it very interesting, far more from an investing sort of psychology point of view. Uh, I'm no expert in in digital currencies or decentralized ledgers. But I, the one thing I have found very ironic about everything I have read and listened to is that people got into crypto to earn fiat money, which is, which is completely the opposite of, of, of what you would have thought. If you look at Sam Bank Friedman, if you look at all the exchanges, if you look at all the banks that have got into trouble, it was to get paper money. Right, normal dollars, normal rands, normal euros. That's what people have taken. They haven't taken your your digital currencies. And you would have thought the whole point people like digital currencies was to get away from paper currencies. And the one important lesson also is all bubbles, you know, when they end, look exactly the same way. You know, all the malfeasance, all the stealing, all the theft. Sort of a lot of the businesses, if you actually go and look at these business models, were Ponzi schemes. Um, so there was actually no real underlying cash generation in any of the, the businesses. And unfortunately, it also seems a lot of the exchanges and a lot of the, the wider ecosystem effectively has just been used for money laundering. More and more of this is coming out, as we'll see, um, as their bankruptcy proceedings and people have to actually disclose documents. So I do think it is a good idea. I mean, as I said, I'm not an expert, but if you read, it's fairly clear that digital currencies are here to stay, but it's more likely to move to government digital currencies. Um, I mentioned earlier China and Saudi Arabia, and I think it's Thailand and two other countries. They've already made an exchange that settles in real time using sovereign digital currencies. And again, that's a way to, to move away from the dollar. Um, and one of the reasons, uh, if you ask people what sector screens pretty cheaply other than energy globally, it's financials, banking. And one of the reasons people 
ascribe lower valuations to the financials is because of decentralized ledgers, right? In 10, 20 years, how's the ecosystem going to look like and isn't this technology going to, to price them out? But at least, you know, when you go to a restaurant or a wine bar, there's not someone sitting with earphones trading currencies every five seconds so you can get back to a more normal society. You actually have to work to make money. Certainly another really topical issue at the moment. Actually, I don't think I can open up any sort of web browser or look on LinkedIn or whatever. All you can see is articles about chat GPT. And certainly while AI has been around for a long time, what that app has done is is it's kind of raised the consciousness of what is actually possible. Uh, And when you think about it, that's just using generally available information. So that's before you even think about what AI could do if you're actually taking, let's for example, our data set to another business's data set. So is this the end of, you know, fundamental investing? And don't just give me the obvious answer. No, I wouldn't say so. So the one interesting thing, um, some of the analysts have been playing around with the tool and it's very diplomatic. Like, is Tamron a good podcast presenter? And we'll say like, well, on the one hand or on the other hand. So it doesn't really give you specific answers on certain things, but I mean, it really has been raised uh, in the consciousness. If I just look at my inbox, I probably must have got 20, 30 emails from the sell side about they've got the head of Google, ex-head of Google, artificial intelligence, this person. So it's really been raised um, into people's consciousness. I even saw a great thing, which I sent to our marketing team. The guy with a good sense of humor from Bank of America puts out a very good weekly strategy uh, document, had at the top in the heading, this was not generated by chat GPT. So <laughs> it's going to be hard to know. And I just think These that's, are real humans yeah, on this yeah, podcast. Yeah, this is the way the world's going. I mean, I, I was even listening on a podcast, you know, Eric Schmidt, the former chairman of Google, saying if he looks at where he saw things going, within a year, you won't be able to tell the difference between a real and a fake video. So besides all the sort of investment implications, there's going to be lots of social implications as well. What are we doing? Well, I haven't chatted to the Orbis guys about it, but it's definitely, we have got three of the analysts actually going to do a presentation on it for us. I mean, does it mean Google search engine is not worth what it was anymore? Does it mean we don't need journalists? Does it mean we don't need analysts? Don't need presidential scriptwriters? I mean, who knows where it can go? But obviously, the world is moving towards there. I read an interesting once. I think there are only one or two things from Star Trek that are actually not around anymore. So, I mean, technology, and you can imagine if we're seeing that, imagine what's at the cutting edge. Like mm. if we're seeing this. Um, I just found it interesting that Mr. Musk happened to be invested in it as well. So Microsoft are putting $10 billion into chat. GPT. That's, that's a lot of money. If we think about the last 10 years, and we think of all the trends that some of which we've spoken about kind of over the last little while. So there's tech businesses, we've had social media, we've had a rise in geopolitical risk and a like move to sort of more populism. And I know that we've we've touched on some of these, but if you think about the next 10 years, so we're going to be sitting, uh, looking back, what do you think this, this upcoming decade is going to be known for? It's a difficult question. So I, I would think two things. So the one is continuing deglobalization. So the world reshoring, the world continuing to split into smaller blocks. I think we all take a lot of things we do in everyday life for granted. And if you in countries which are weak, I, I think that's going to be exposed. My own sort of personal uh, issue, I think one of the biggest trends by far is going to be in healthcare. If you look at the advances, you know, do you really want to speak to your phone and make funny faces come up? Like the re- technology, the real differences are going to be made in healthcare because if you look in the US, healthcare as a percentage of, of GDP, the spend is, is massive. And what you really want to move towards is prevention. 
I mean, you're really wearing an Apple watch over there, Tamron. I'm sure it tells you all sorts of things about your health. So I think some of the big breakthroughs are going to be in, in, in healthcare in, in 10 years. Yeah, it's, it's certainly a better use than TikTok, that's for sure. You know, my final question is, you know, for everyone listening, so advisors or clients, and uh, what is the one piece of advice that you would give uh, as people are thinking about their portfolios for the year ahead? It would be the same thing we say every year. Let's just stick to your, your long-term goal and your long-term plans because, as we saw the last two years, you know, things can fluctuate pretty wildly and you don't want to get whipsawed by sort of buying at the top and, and selling at the bottom. So have sort of a plan. Think about where you're going to be over the next sort of 10 years and, and invest, you know, appropriately. If if you don't want to make decisions across various asset classes, you know, their asset managers offer, you know, balanced funds and, and stable funds. There is, I guess, we all need to also prepare. I mean, there might be a chance the headlines are scarier than the last two years. You can certainly think of a few scenarios. And so it's just getting down, sticking to your plan and, and investing alongside it. So thanks to Duncan for joining me for this episode. We chatted about some of the big market shifts that we saw in 2022. We talked about some of the trends and challenges that we're seeing in both the local and global landscapes and which could influence the positioning of our portfolios. And we also talked about how we're thinking about that positioning to both protect against these risks, but also at the same time ensuring that we remain on the right side of long-term trends. So if you'd like to get in touch to hear further, please send an email to info at alangray.co.za. Alan Gray is an authorized financial services provider. If you want to view the terms and conditions and to explore our latest insights and investment offering, please visit our website at alangray.co.za. Until next time, I'm Tamarin from Alan Gray. This podcast was produced by Volume. Thank you to everyone for taking the time to listen.